0: Hello Tara, thank you for being on.
1: Hi Colin, thanks for having me.
0: Now Tara, this is our second go around on this. Yes. Because we are very closely located between New Zealand and Australia, but whether it's weather conditions, oceanographic anomalies or something, our first go at this last week, it didn't work out technically. So we're gonna have a redo of a fascinating, wonderful conversation about Franchise.
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I don't know what happened last week, but we've got an opportunity to improve on it, I hope. Excellent. Now.
0: First off, when I start thinking about franchises and in my head, I immediately go to big, obvious media properties. I think of Harry Potter, I think of Star Wars, even things like Transformers, all of these big crossover things that exist in all these different forms like films and games and books and comics and that sort of stuff. And it feels like reading a thesis in your work that, especially recently, there's a body of work developing where people are starting to figure out how to consciously construct these really big franchises.
1: Yeah, so absolutely, when we think about franchises, we think about these really big, um, big properties. Um, but the term franchising has been used over over the years in, in various ways, uh, particularly, you know, 70s sort of that associated with that sort of blockbuster turn. Um, and, you know, the idea of the franchise has been thrown around over the decades. But it is the last 20 years or so where we have seen this real crystallisation of this idea of a franchise a media franchise i will say firstly though that there are various different iterations of a of franchising in the creative industries uh, particularly related to television syndication and um other kinds of sort of small scale licensing so my work has though honed in very much on the blockbuster franchising so this idea that you've alluded to of a really big uh media phenomenon and um I, I i have identified that and as, as many have that you know we could call this the franchise era. and there's some sort of debates about when we might say this has picked up um 2001 and examples like you know lord of the rings trilogy alongside the harry potter trilogy is where we really see this taking it's you know really really getting, capturing that audience. Um, I'd go back a little bit, uh, just a little sooner, I see the the turn of the millennia to be really important. So 1999, with the cases like The Phantom Menace, so that, you know, the rejuvenation of Star Wars, The Matrix, huge. um, And we see, you know, shifts in the Bond franchise. So why sort of locate that period there historically as this turn, where we see the Proto franchise, so you know, your more raw, crude examples of sequels that are just sort of an added on idea, to now in the last 20 years, a real increase and a domination of what we see as the, the blockbuster franchise.
0: Nice. And in terms of trying to define that even more, what I think I picked up from your work was. I think many people are familiar with the idea that, especially in the 70s, this new era of essentially summer blockbuster films came Mm. in, Jaws, Star Wars, all of these things. And there's obviously some kind of direct line from that to things like the Marvel universe of today. But one of the things that I think I found in your work is this idea of um, in the 70s and 80s especially, you had one thing that was very often a movie that was kind of the, the, the main story, the real thing. Star Wars, the film, was the real thing. And then you would have a lot of spin offs and derivatives mm. that were sort of lesser, like you'd have the spin off um, um, comic or the novel or the t shirts, all those sort of things. And there wasn't necessarily a lot of thought given to real continuity across those stories. It wasn't, they didn't really care too much if this tie in novel conflicted with this tie in video game all these sort of things. And I think one of the things that you were saying in your work was, now especially in the really successful ones like marvel there's this idea of a giant story world that does all hang together and all of the parts are important
1: yeah yeah i think that it's done better in some examples than others, you know, Yeah, like something like Marvel. But even within the Marvel context, there are examples of more ancillary content that isn't as coherent. And, you know, we have an obsession with this idea of canon, which within a lot of fan um, communities, canon is paramount. But um, within a kind of franchise development context, I translate that to something a little bit more instrumental, which is um, a sort of coherence at the property level. And um, I don't necessarily think that canon is as important as some fan communities like it to be, but I think that the importance of canon to a fan community has a lot more to do with that community engagement and, and those kinds of elements related to the encyclopedic, the trivia, those kinds of things Um but also because so much the more content we have it can be quite overwhelming so the idea of canon becomes a really nice device for fan engagement to filter well what what do i prioritize but then but that's so that's a fan sort of aspect of it but i think that at the development at the production level um there really should be a sense of coherence across all those ancillary elements and it, it doesn't necessarily have to be continuity though so, narrative continuity I see is different to property coherence. And so, you can stay true to an idea in essence of a property without necessarily having to join dots in the narrative. And yeah, so I think that, and that comes down though to good development. And that comes down to understanding the core essence, things like, um, you know, what's the message of this property? What's its ethos? What's it trying to do? Um, what's it trying to say about the world? Yeah. Um, and that doesn't have to be necessarily world changing, but yeah, what's its vision? And if every element somehow contributes to that vision, to that essence, then you've got a little Bit more coherence across all the elements I think.
0: Nice and so for instance if you and I have our hundreds of millions of dollars as we do and we're sitting down and we wouldn't necessarily say well let's make a movie and then if that does well we might try and make another movie and we'll keep on making movies basically one by one until things drop off. We would be thinking okay we're going to present a a giant story world and it is going to be driven by core themes and ideas and these are going to be infused into everything we do going forward. Um, and and I think you can see very clearly, again, um, now, especially the MCU, the Marvel Universe feels very well constructed in that sense. And several other people who have tried to do the exact same thing, you, you get that sense of they didn't have that coherence, they didn't have that driving sense of this is what we we're all about. And so you get large properties kind of um, essentially swerving drunkenly Mm. from one form to the next and never quite sure what they're doing. And then people get confused and you can see that start to relate to that. There are problems with the money in the box off and these type of things. So there is a very real commercial financial reality to why should you have these abstract structures?
1: Absolutely, because people feel it. They might not know what they're actually discerning, but they're feeling that something's not quite right. There's a lack of authenticity if that work hasn't been done behind the scenes. And I mean, this comes down to very basic. Have you developed your script? <laughs> um, and, and with the franchise development that I, that stage that comes before your pre-production is, is where all the juices, it's where all the, all the tapestry happens. So, I see it as um, if that work hasn't been done, it's going to be felt in the product. And though I think when you say the question of, you know, just thinking about a movie and then another movie. So if we take an example like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Marvel Studios has talked about when we started with Iron Man, we just set about making one great movie. But that great movie must have had some kind of world developed behind it for that to take off in the way it did. Uh, that wasn't an afterthought. And part of that is the comics provided a really rich yeah. basis for R&D uh, and that's not an insult to comics at all. I think comics offer such an amazing, um, rich way to explore creative ideas. Um, but obviously it's it's valid in its own right as well because another aspect of, I think, what you're saying and asking about here is sometimes a movie might not be the best way to tell a particular aspect of a story world. So if you've got an idea and so it really has to start with a concept, You get a concept, you enrich the concept, then you make a plan for what are the best iterations, the best platforms to introduce the world to my concept. It may no. be a blockbuster movie, or it may be a comic book it may be a game uh it may be a podcast series um so sometimes it's about saying well what does my story need and what is the best avenue and for most studios of course that's a blockbuster movie because that's what's going to get all the, the eyeballs
0: nice although um um very recently these last few years obviously you've seen um the rise and rise and rise of video, video game gaming. franchises yeah and i i think the the classic example of this right now is probably riot games league of legends which as a video game is essentially a top-down thing where you guide a group of people across a battlefield landscape um and they translated that into a netflix animated series called arcane mm. which has nothing to do with the gameplay of the game it's just in the same world and arcane is an absolutely astonishing iteration of um here is a full-blooded story that people really resonate with that doesn't feel in any way like the tv version of a video game that might have happened a while ago um as you're saying this i was i was just thinking of there's a wonderful podcast called old gods of appalachia which is um really intense audio stories set in this kind of horror filled version of um these very dark mountains with a mining town that's taken over by an evil family. And you can absolutely imagine that um one of the core things of that podcast is the literally the vocal delivery, the oral soundscape mm. of it is really compelling. But if I were to take that and turn it into a TV series or a comic, especially a comic obviously, because the comic's not going to have um yeah probably any sound, you immediately start to think, okay, what's the strength of that delivery? What does a comic give me that an oral podcast doesn't? And especially what does a game give me, which is fundamentally interactivity yeah. that a giant blockbuster film can't? It's, it's really interesting trying to think about these kinds of architecture.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that these questions are really important to thinking about a multi-platform development and production as well. Um, what does What does a medium offer that serves the story? and that aspect of that story world. Um, And I think that it's a really interesting shift we're seeing with video gaming, because obviously video gaming is offering uh, audiences uh, players, something more that they're not feeling they're getting from other forms. So I think that that's a really interesting um, aspect to, to this, to this conversation and, I think that the idea of we call it medium specificity within a context of you know media studies and it's that idea of yeah, what does a media what does a medium do? That's it doesn't it doesn't mean that you can't experiment with the different media platforms, but you have to ask that question of why am I doing it on this medium? And and sometimes it might be simple as I've got budget constraints. Nice. So cool, if you've got budget constraints and you are a smaller, you know, small scale creator, you wanna you've got a great concept. And you want to envision it as a bigger concept. Um, it might mean that you have to go to those, you know, but you know, smaller budget platforms. Well, then you have to ask the questions of, okay, cool, but I can't just make this on a podcast, like use a podcast, but think of it as a blockbuster movie. You have to sure. ask those questions about what is what is it the form giving me that will serve the story for where I'm at right now in my re- with my resources.
0: Nice. And taking your example, if, if if we're making our story podcast, we probably don't just jump into the library and get a whole bunch of podcast um, sounds of explosions and kind of go, hey, that's the big action sequence that yeah. cost $100 million in the movie. That's great, right? You can imagine that, right? Because that's probably not going to be doing the strongest job.
1: That's it. And I mean, you said about comic books. Comic books still represent sound in its own in its own way um, on the page with text. Fair, so then yeah. it's about asking, well, what kinds of sounds and what kinds of scenarios and what I'm depicting will work best in a panel, um, nice. you know, with those kinds of things. Um, I will add, though, in terms of, you know, you asked me the question about, yeah, we start with a concept, but I do see that we can also do this retroactively as well, where, you know, something like um, – Star Wars or, um, Star Trek, you know, Bond, actually Bond is a great example too, because these are one, these are examples where we, you know, we're a bit more, we're talking a bit more old fashioned in, in the approach where we had a, you know, we had a source material that then got expanded, um, context specific, obviously Star Wars is, you know, a movie, uh, drawn inspiration from, you know, the breadth of (laughs) cinema's history and genres. But in those examples, um, they offer a way to look at, well, we start with a early example and then we go, well, we want to turn this into a franchise. What do we do? And then, so there we use the early iterations as a blueprint to retroactively enrich a property. So when I say that we start with a concept, we can also do this it, it retroactively where we we build out a property and in the, in that way we use all the juice all the great creative um materials to build build out the world that way
0: so nice yeah and i guess part of the advantage surely is that if you have something in any form like a movie that's already worked it's already found an audience Absolutely. you then do have a signal we can go this does work okay why does it work rather than just kind of measure taking that example um, um so what's what's the core of Bond? What is James Bond? Tara? <laughs> wow, what a question! <laughs>
1: <laughs> if we were reverse engineering James Bond of, of 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 all its history, what what drives Bond? The interesting thing about Bond is I, I go to form as a really interesting um, way to approach the question because you're throwing me on the spot here. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I did not read my notes before on uh, how do we. Uh, identify the essence of bond. But one of the interesting things with bond is we associate, obviously we've got the actors, right? We've got the changing of the guard over time. Um, So we associate now with the franchise, okay, we've accepted similar to something like Doctor Who, we accept that part of this franchise involves changing of actors. So then we have a whole world of, you know, commentary around who will be the next Bond. That's actually a really important part of the infrastructure of Bond. um, Another aspect is historically we have um, a type of series form with Bond in in film where he's – we don't have memory in the same way that yeah. we have, you know, continuity in something like the MCU. So earlier I talked about you don't have to have continuity. This is an example of that where Bond, you know, every, every film is its own almost self-contained entity and there are only some small examples in the Bond franchise where we have um, some, a little bit of memory um, little bit of continuation, and, and that being, you know, spoilers, uh, you know, the, the death of Bond's wife at the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And then we have, you know, a couple of little um, callbacks to that um, in other examples, um, you know, visiting um, her grave and things like that. So they're, they're very um, small scale aspects of continuity in Bond, but more more often it's been a series where each movie is its own thing. And that has changed in the Daniel Craig era where we're having now a res- – it's almost like there's a re- response to the franchise era and things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe has shown, okay, you know now we have an obsession with continuity. So the James Bond franchise in this Daniel Craig era has leaned more towards memory, towards culmination, towards a series structure that – yeah, continues across the series where you do have to watch previous installments. So they're things that I think are really associated with the Bond franchise over time. Um, But obviously then there's the other aspects to do with, you know, national identity, um, you know, geopolitics. So there's the genre aspect. Yeah. And the other thing too with something like Bond, so Bond is spy but. Spy, the spy genre cannot be intellectually uh, – the intellectual property cannot be protected. A genre cannot be protected. Yeah. So another reason why franchises have offered something, a good opportunity for studios is IPs can be protected. So we see a lot of films over the, over the years, you know, the, the – um, what was it called? The IP Press? Something, uh, I can't remember the exact example, uh, but it was a lot of cycle of films that motion to Bond. And yeah. use the success of Bond, um, to for marketability, um, but with a franchise you can protect it. So there's that opportunity there. Um, so that is also evolving. How do you evolve Bond across time? Um, nice, yeah.
0: And I guess in terms of the, the 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 internal rhythms and the things that we we know and expect and sometimes love about a Bond film. Um, that particular franchise has really had to reckon with that, because yeah. um, a British guy who gets the girl and essentially does something against the Eastern Bloc um, is a rhythm that, in in today's world, you do have to, one way or another, say, okay, we're aware of some of the aspects of this. We do have to play with them, but it's still playing around the same form, right? You, yeah. Um, very much, I, I mean, taking the MCU as as a very similar example, Um, we're fundamentally dealing with superheroes here, but at some point we do have to grapple with some of the weirder, more challenging aspects of superheroes and the films have started to do that. Mm. Um, and, and I think taking, um, 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 one of the other properties, which I'm I'm not sure if it is a franchise, Mission Impossible.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mission
0: Impossible is arguably wildly outdated, but I still love seeing Tom Cruise sprint across a tarmac.
1: (laughs) He loves running.
0: But then I'm not entirely sure what if Tom Cruise is too famous to be part of a franchise. So this he's is a Hollywood star.
1: Yeah, like a uh, great topic here. Um, so I've actually published on um, the use of yeah, Tom Cruise uh, and the impact he has on a franchise um, through a comparison between Mission Impossible and um, the attempted Dark Universe story world with uh oh, so the Mummy, the Mummy, right? right. Yep. So. The interesting thing with Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible is the Mission Impossible franchise has now been developed in such a way where its essence is intricately inscribed with Tom Cruise's stardom. Nice. Right? That is what drives it. So you asked me about Bond. Here's one, Mission Impossible. Sure, it's adapted from source material with a television series, but the franchise itself has done that work to reformulate the essence to be Tom Cruise right? So his stardom drives that. And, and his, his, the association of genre, action genre, with his stardom is, is, is part of the system for the Mission Impossible franchise. But he, he as, a, as a star, has a lot of what we call signifying force, right? He's got a lot of signifying power. It becomes difficult then to have him in a franchise where the story world is bigger than him, so with something like the Dark Universe franchise, which was attempted to be based on um, the Universal Monsters catalogue from you know classical Hollywood, which I thought was a, just a fascinating premise.
0: Yeah, you've got the, like like um, The Creature from the Black Lagoon and Dracula yeah, and all, all these I things. Mean,
1: yeah, yeah the, the, invisib- the Invisible Man. It um, would have been amazing to get a Phantom of the Opera. Um, that kind of uh, using that as a catalogue to then say we want to activate this for the franchise era was a fascinating concept. Its execution, unfortunately, was its downfall. I mean, there's many reasons why, you know, its downfall. But one of them, I I would suggest, had to do with um, bringing in a star with so much signifying power as Tom Cruise. And so a lot of the marketing material did things like, you know, welcome to a new world of gods and monsters, you know, we had a deliberate building of of a of a world in a similar vein to what you know what the MCU was, was doing at that time, and then in the same marketing material in bigger font, starring Tom Cruise. <laughs> so how does that work, right? So we have then a clash. We have a clash of systems. We have stardom in franchising, and I think that where stardom stardom is still really important in franchising, but the the star needs to serve the property. And so Mission Impossible works because the property is the star, whereas it did, doesn't did, didn't work in, in in the dark universe, in The Mummy. Um, also another question, you know, tying back to what we were saying earlier, was The Mummy the best first iteration for this property?
0: It's an interesting question, yeah. isn't it? Especially yeah. given the other film series that was still within reasonably short memory. Um, also, just as you're saying, with with the, the thing about star power, um Obviously, Star Wars and Harry Potter, two two of the larger franchises, um, both began with the core cast of relatively unknown people. Mm -hmm. You didn't get sort of Mark Hamill cross interference in the first Star Wars where you're going, that's Mark Hamill. You go, no, that's Luke Skywalker. Yeah, that's
1: right. That's right. And, I mean, you can see an example now with Marvel Cinematic Universe is using examples like they're engaging really big stars. But they're not their main. They're not the main protagonists. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, and so they're cultivating their own stars in association with their um, their characters. Whereas then they'll bring in bigger stars to fill in the kind of. They're quite literally supporting. They're holding up. They're validating in some way, um, adding credibility and status. Um, you know, this idea of, oh, you know. They're joining the MCU. They must. They must love us. You know, we must be a great place to work for if stars are coming coming to work with us. So there's that kind of cultural kind of status I think happening there. Um, but I think in other examples, you know, like we see examples like Ezra Miller, and you know what that's doing for DC. And a, you know, sure. a, a star, a, you know, they they can derail. They can. So there's where you need to do that work with your stars um, to to support. Make sure they're supporting but also maybe support them if they need it because otherwise if they go off the rails they're going to send your whole property off the rails potentially
0: it's an interesting point that that um i think pure intellectual property in theory is so much more manageable than a messy human being oh. and if i were <laughs> if i was a large company i'd be like i'd rather have the ip thank you and just have a kind of not quite a rotating door of humans but like very much Put, put the onus on on the thing I own and control rather than these messy stars to some extent?
1: I think particularly in the age of social media as well, this has become <laughs> sure. even bigger. You know, maybe, maybe during the classical era, you know, the star system held it up. Um, yeah. But how does that work in an era where everyday people can have direct contact with stars through social media and see their lives? And so that public and private... Uh, dichotomy it sort of goes out of whack a little bit, um, at least from, you know, how it worked earlier on in history. Um, so so where I see stars is I see stars in a similar way working in franchises to like directors as well, where they're, they're, they're serving the property in a way where they're adding, they're either, uh, you know, drawing in an audience that likes and is familiar, um, but they're also adding differentiation because there's this sort of that that this perception that franchises everything same same, you know everything's everything's identical. It's repetition, repetition. Um, there's a lot more differentiation in there than is often given credit. Um, and often often com- commentators who focus on the repetition are not people who are invested. Um, they're not your audience. So, but you know fans who follow. A, a particular franchise, they see the differentiation. That's what keeps them coming. Um, so stars can offer that, but also directors can offer that too. Nice. Yeah.
0: And I think it's the ultimate hometown example for me, which is obviously Taika Waititi's take on Thor, especially the first one. Um, it was it was very much within the Marvel universe, but vastly more entertaining in a different way than it had been in there. So you had that real thing of, this is absolutely one of our movies, but it's really cool in a different new way. And yeah. Taika definitely put his style on that. Um, um, so with this really interesting emerging body of work and theory about how to essentially consciously build these franchises um, and not necessarily, as you say, at the, at the full on sort of megabillion scale, if you're a young creator coming up and you're going to be building something, what's your advice? How do do you start or approach consciously building out these larger worlds?
1: Mm, It's a great question. I think um, it's really important to to note that although I'm talking about really big blockbusters with big budgets and a lot of resources, it is also possible to scale what we're talking about here as well um, and scale it down based on, like I said earlier, uh, maybe, you know, there are some platforms that offer, uh, you know, their low-fi, lower-budget and you can actually express your ideas through these medium mediums so in say so you know I'll say that meaning it is not just something that Hollywood can do it is something that we can see at a at a, at a smaller you know local scale as well um, you know a national cinema level perhaps and so for emerging creators I see it as a sure think about your individual iteration but think about that take a step back from that iteration as well and think about um, be a bit more ambitious, I guess, about what's the potential for an idea. Um, sure, I've got an idea for a film script, but maybe maybe your idea has legs for more than that um, because if if it has legs for more than that, then your single iteration, even if it stays one single iteration, is going to be more authentic. Uh, it's going to have more life force to it creatively because it it – it seems like it could take off and exist on its own. (laughs) Because that's how I see franchising creatively. I see it as something that's like um getting a lawnmower started. Is a lawnmower culturally specific? Um is that a (laughs) is that an Aussie thing? You have lawnmowers in New Zealand. Oh you do? Okay. Well (laughs) everyone else can Google it. Um if it's not, I'm not too sure. But you know, um it's, you know, getting a yeah, well, whipper snipper, getting that going. Um, and you know, you want to give it enough creative juice and fuel that it can then, once you get get it, the ignition going, it can take off on its own. And so creating things that actually can have a life of its own and can sustain over time can be sustainable over time is one of the kind of fundamentals of, of franchising. So I think that I, I don't think that's just something that needs to happen at the big scale, but it, it is a way to approach creative work at a small scale as well. And so you want to give life force to what you're doing. So I think that you know in terms of advice, a real big one is um, not creating barriers for future iterations so and that's not about being open and vague but creating little doorways in your world and this comes down to a sort of video game interactive story way of approaching all creative work and, and storytelling is yeah opening little have little doors um there that keep them closed but they can be open when they need to and if they need to um so don't don't if you're building a house you know thinking about it building a house you know yeah create doors that can be opened don't have them maybe have them with a lock and key, fine, <laughs> but have a system in place that that door can be open. Nice. Yeah, you know that's the number one thing I think. So that is the not not building in contradiction.
0: You're yeah, nice. Uh, our, um, our mutual friend Jeff Gomez I yep. think, talks about this as creating the um, um, the distant mountains.
1: The distant mountains, which absolutely. From,
0: which is from Tolkien, but this idea of yeah, um, and and uh, there was a. Um, There's a classic sci-fi writer, um, Larry Niven, who wrote a wonderful series of short stories and large novels. But every once in a while in a Larry Niven story, he'll just casually mention something like, oh, the old war of the so-and-so. And And he'll never come back to it again. But you have this sense of there's a there's a mountain over there. And sometimes I'd like to go there somehow in some other form and explore whatever that was. And just these casual, almost offhand little moments and references. As you say, this happens all the time in video games as well. And just that sense of the overall kind of canvas is larger than the frame that we're looking at right now.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, See, this is something that I still love and empowered by when I watch a movie. And I know that, you know, with, obviously you said before, there's a big shift to video gaming because video game gaming offers a a level of world building and interactivity that we don't get in films, but something that I'm still absolutely love about cinema and I'm particularly widescreen blockbuster at a cinema that kind of idea that there is more beyond the frame, that there is something that I'm not seeing that I can either imagine or the creators might show me down the line. And I love that kind of idea when I'm watching a movie. And so I I just love the the widescreen format because I love that idea that there is something potentially above that is just there that is simultaneously there in my experience while I'm watching that I just can't see yet. Um, and so that, that idea. And so I'll share one of my, you know, a real captivating moment for me for cinema was the binary sunset scene in Star Wars. Right. A lot of it, right? Luke is looking out at the horizon of, you know, and he's, he's thinking and he's imagining more for me. That is my experience of watching a fr- any iteration of a franchise. And it is always about that idea that somewhere over the horizon there is more. Will I get to see it one day? Um and, and so thinking about that and that I mean that distant mountain, that's a distant mountain idea as well. Um and so for me as a both as a as a creator um but also as a you know a a lover of of this kind of um storytelling, that is what I feel empowered by, that idea of more. Nice and
0: um i'm also thinking at that exact same time there are there are a lot of um the star wars example there are a lot of sci-fi movies especially from the 70s which are the reverse i'm thinking of logan's run mm-hmm. which is a wonderful film that that um but to me there's not a strong sense of the distant mountains in logan's run it's a very self-contained story that starts begins and ends in your kind of classical structure but somewhere there isn't a door. And it's and it's hard to quantify and it's hard to say, but I, I watch Logan's run and I go, great story, loved it, it's done. I don't go, oh, I wonder what's over those mm. mountains.
1: I think too often, uh, particularly within a sci-fi context, particularly the sub-genre sci-fi, of, um, you know, the dystopian, a lot of that what's in that doorway is more reflection on our own society. Sure. Um, and so maybe that doorway is more about it's closed because – you know, it's we're, we're sort of being asked to be introspective on our own world, um, and so this is a my my thing is Star Wars is not a sci-fi. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I for agree. me, for me, it's one of my things. I'd be like, Star Wars is not a sci-fi. So because it's part of this idea of, I always say one of my biggest nightmares is that the net, any future iteration of Star Wars will feature Earth. Yeah. Sure. For me, that is like that'll lose me completely because, for me, if I want if I want a, you know, a world out in space, I'll watch Star Trek where I know yeah. that I've got Earth or, you know, any other kind of sci-fi that positions that moreness in relation to Earth. Um, so the idea of sci-fi reflecting on our own society, like Planet of the Apes, that is just like the ultimate one where it's like, where the first the first movie, you know, where 1968, um there's this distant planet and then we end it on, oh no, it's our back door. Oh shit, what have we done? <laughs> what have you done? Um so that kind of that kind of internalization of the sci fi I think is something that it's an interesting question for those open doorways. Um nice but I, I don't have an answer to right now, but oh, it's yeah, interesting. It's, yeah. and,
0: it, and that's one of the things that, that, that really interests me in terms of the the reality of creators out there who one way or another are pitching things in various forms, trying to get funding, trying to get things produced. And you do have that clash of forms, right? Especially as, um, to me, at least in my experience, there's a strong difference, for instance, between what we'll call Hollywood pitching and then some aspects of national cinema pitching, certainly mm-hmm. in New Zealand and Australia. And sometimes you're being very explicitly told to present something that is closed to, yeah. to, to say, I want a film and it must be a film and it must be about the most important day of someone's life. And it must be beginning, middle and end. And that's all we want. And even if you dared at the end of your pitch document, to have one page going, oh, and there's some more stuff we could do. That won't be the focus. Whereas when I listen to Jeff, for instance, Jeff Gomez talk about some of these things, and he's more like, well, we're always trying to bring that stuff up front in the pitch document. We're trying to say here is Mm -hmm. a world with core themes and drivers, and here's how it will express itself. But there's there's a difficult tension for people trying to get stuff made. Sometimes that's wanted, and sometimes the people that you're talking to are just a little bit behind, and they really don't want that.
1: Absolutely. And you, and you get that irony too of saying, oh, we, we want something that's, you know, got potential to be a series. But then you, you know, frame it as a world and they're like, oh, wait, what what do you mean? No, that's, no, gosh, no, this isn't fantasy. I'm like, that's not, I'm not talking about, I don't have to be talking about fantasy. Uh, So there's that conflation too of that idea of a bigger world and, oh, no, but this isn't fantasy. We don't have the budget for fantasy. I'm like, I'm not talking about that. Like, (laughs) you know, so there's definitely that. and So I definitely see that too um, in a local context where we're thinking about the script and the screenplay. And then you go, well, where's your, where's the background where's your development where's the idea oh no I just wrote a script I'm like I don't want to read your script I want your treatment I want your I want your Bible I want your ideas um, because that's what you need to turn to when to fill those gaps as well um, so yeah I definitely I definitely see that as well and I've, I've struggled within a local context to find a find a way to relate to processes and practices done here because um we we have a couple of great examples in australia of um this sort of um, thing happening so we've got the the miss fisher franchise um which is started off as miss fisher's um murder mysteries and now there's a new iteration, Ms. Fisher's Modern Murder Mysteries, um, and there's some overseas iterations as well. And I do believe that is being kind of conceptualized a bit bigger than even though. And there's the film as well. We've got There's a feature film, Crypt of, Crypt of Tears. Um, so that's an example of that being sort of done. And then there's uh, The Clever Man story world. That was, um, a, it was actually a New Zealand co production, a superhero, indigenous. Character, and that had two television series and a com- two issues of comic book, um, and that hasn't continued. So we've seen some examples of this, but it almost seems like this failure to kind of like embrace it beyond those examples. So I'd oh, love, was- I'd love to see, I'd love to see, you know, small scale national cinema embracing this different kind of approach.
0: Absolutely, and and to me, as you say, I I see no reason why you can't have complete franchises existing that are in perhaps comics and books and audio form and smaller movies and all these things like like not everyone is trying to make the marvel cinematic universe and it's not that you would just wholesale try and make that and make and then make a smaller version for australia but absolutely like like if you're a creator coming up why wouldn't you be thinking about all these different forms and all these different movements and even um i know right now within television there's been a, a sharp shift in some quarters because yellowstone Yes. It's obviously a very expensive American show, but um, um, it's actually driven by this single family, who I think their defining characteristic would be true stubbornness, hmm. and their and their their interactions with a classic Western landscape over the course of, of about 150 years, and you can build multiple TV shows across the overall architecture of this franchise and they Mm. are doing that and they're very different shows but they fit within the same universe and so all of a sudden you do have in my experience some tv people going oh maybe we need some of the yellowstone stuff whereas before trying to pitch things in that form saying the first version will be this but there's this whole skeleton behind it you just get kicked out of the room yeah so there's definitely there's there's things bubbling away is what i'm saying tara but it's maybe not quite there in terms of being really accepted yet?
1: Yeah, there's definitely great examples of it taking off. And I think what happens though, is then, you know, that kind of classic pitch, I want to do like they're doing. But if you don't actually understand the mechanism of what's working, you're not going to be able to do what they're doing. Um, so there's that kind of aspect too. Um, and then not realizing that I see continuities with what we're talking about, but with you know more conventional and traditional. I don't think that what we're talking about is something that is so strikingly new. Um, but it is about that awareness that I do need to shift a little bit in my thinking. I need a shift, as you said, I need a shift from the conclu- the concluding provocation should be my starting point. Nice. You know, so we're just, we're working with what's already being done historically in, in production, in creativity, but we're just reconceptualizing it a little bit and we're reformulating a little bit. Um, and we're doing that in response to new affordances we have with with technology, with platforms Um but we're still, the essence is sort of still there in terms of what, what we're doing. Um, an example I'm, I'm working on at the moment is, so I was involved with um, consulting on a project called Underworld Wrestling in, in Australia. It's a live production, uh, a live event um, that at the time was shown on Amazon Prime. It was one season. It was a high concept idea that had a, had a story world behind it. Um, and it was this um, idea that an um, underground fight club um now had now gone public because a sort of new sinister villain had taken over um and so you know that was one season and we worked on potentially turning that into season two and uh, uh, increasing the scriptedness of it because obviously pro wrestling storytelling fits within really falls within this crack between scripted and non-scripted um but COVID happened and a whole bunch of different, you know, realisation that Australia's regulation around um, protecting wrestling and, and realising a wrestling production, we don't have the same kind of infrastructure here as potentially America does. Um, so what ended up happening with that, though, was stories now being told in a comic book form. Nice. And so now that's awesome. what we're sort of working on and um about to put out there and launch um, on Kickstarter next year. It's called Panda Magic, um, and so it's um, what happens when the um, pandemic meets magic. Um, nice. And so it's set in the same world, but we have a different protagonist but with a familiar villain from this story world. So um, it's, a, it's a little bit of an experiment, an example of maybe potentially doing this, what we're talking about at a small scale. Um, and so I think there is opportunities here, and I think there's even opportunities in that same world for like, interactive storytelling in storytelling you know, low budget gaming and things like that. So, um, hopefully that can be a good example of what more we could do when, when that's realized more. Um, and I do think though, that, National cinemas need a shift a little bit on thinking about. <laughs> but thinking about the multiple as well, and I think we, we talked about this in our first take of um, the idea of uh, we have now seeing a shift to emphasizing gaming. Um, and now it's like everything is like, oh, great, gaming's the next big thing. Let's throw all and every single resource and talent and let's train us up and let's go all, let's all go to gaming. Um, I would like to see a scenario where we're still doing all of it. You know, yep. we're all and we're all working to our strengths and and skills. Um, you know, skill up if you're interested in gaming. Sure, great. That's what I'm I'm working on too. But I think that um, this whole shift of like, oh, now now video gaming's big. Let's throw every single resource and and government little penny we have. Um, and it's like, well, oh, okay. Oh, we're, we're all pivoting. Oh, okay, cool. Well, when do we pivot back? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Is there room for all of us to play? <laughs> This but, is always no. the
0: question, right? Can can we pick up more than one tool at a time? Um, and it's same thing in New Zealand. Um, New Zealand had a very hard shift about three years ago, from completely ignoring the New Zealand gaming industry to now being obsessed with it in terms of um, um, that public funding, and and it is. Um, it's it's certainly head turning in, in a in a quite dizzying way. It's like I, I thought you wouldn't even take yep. our meeting, and we're the scummy gaming people And now, it's like no, you're oh, the gaming
1: gods. Yeah, <laughs> now yeah, now you're it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and so then it becomes in a case of well, what's going to be the next it, and yeah. are we are we always just preempting that? Um, and I guess that comes back to when you ask me, you know, what advice? I think that we also need to think about um, the yeah the multiple and not just the one at a time. Um, we need to be thinking ahead to, you know, new opportunities, but also making sure we continue to keep our strengths in the, the forms we've already been doing as well. Nice. Um, and working in concert, that's what I, I feel like we want to see. And I know I understand like small-scale industries don't have as much resourcing, um, but it doesn't have to be done in big budget is essentially my main point there.
0: No, absolutely. And and just that, that core idea that I, that I think I hear in what you're saying of – in the future, there will be this fundamental core skill set, which is essentially helping to architect story worlds that can then be expressed and enjoyed by people across a bunch of different forms. And that centralized thing will, will be a identified skill set that will have a lot more infrastructure around it. And I definitely agree that on almost any scale, literally from you have your first indie comic up right up to the Hollywood franchise level. That this is something that I think almost all creators really should be
1: preparing for. Yeah, absolutely. Because at the at the fundamental level, like I say, this isn't this isn't drastically different from what creators should be doing anyway. You write a screenplay, but where you got notes, you've been, you should be conceptualizing this bigger than what's on the paper, what's on the page. Um, and so if you haven't, then that's where a, a reader or an audience, you know, audience, a player will start to go. I'm not feeling there's depth to this. Sure. And yeah. so it, it always is useful to do that, to do that groundwork. And, um and that's essentially what we're talking about here is just giving a little bit more attention to that work, to the, your planning, your outlines, all those kinds of aspects. Um, they can only be useful for at the very least, which is really powerful, having authenticity in what you're doing.
0: Nice. Uh, I, I really like the approach that you're taking as well of this combination of obviously the scholarly research and and the practice, building these things for yourself. Wrestling is literally the longest running show on TV and the the, the absolute origin of T V storytelling and the idea of taking that and moving into these different media is, 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 is just fantastic. I
1: will, I will just comment on that, that. Yeah. So look, I'm, I'm relatively new to uh, pro, pro wrestling. It's not something that um, I ever thought that I would give much attention to. Um, but when I met my, met my partner, he's a veteran of the local wrestling scene here in Australia. No. And um, he introduced me to, to it. And I, the moment I, it all worked and clicked and he gave me, you know, weeks of tutorials and training and I got a crash course um, in it and I, it all clicked and I, Just went. Oh, this is something I should have been paying attention to. Nice. And and the way it works, and the sort of blurring. We're talking about the star stardom before, and the blurring of what's real and what's not. And I think a fundamental understanding of that wrestling has given me has really enriched my understanding of how complex that can be. Um, and you have these archetypes in wrestling where you have the face and the heel, and they're not, they're not your traditional protagonist and villain kind of scenarios either. They're very much a construct that is connected to what the audience wants. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I'll watch, watch wrestling and I'll say, Oh, I don't like them. And he'll, he'll, you're not meant to. They're the heel. I'm like, Oh, (laughs) right. I get it now. You know, that, that kind of experience. So, um, it's really taught me a lot about storytelling. Um, and I about I think audience interaction as well. Yeah. So I think and that's just really enriched, um enriched what I what I do and how I think about franchising, about filmmaking, about storytelling. Um and it's it's a it's a it's a form that it isn't, it's not in its heyday anymore. That might be changing, but I definitely think it offers us some real interesting mechanisms for thinking about storytelling as well.
0: Absolutely. Every, everyone, in, 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 in my very humble opinion, should pay more attention to the history of pro wrestling if they're interested in story making. Um, this has been awesome, Tara. I've, I've really enjoyed it. We have gone all the way from Star Wars to indie pro wrestling to creating new franchises to TLSN. This, this has been awesome. And what I've really appreciated, and thank you again this this time, I, I really enjoyed reading your work and the connection between the theoretical constructs to how do you actually make these things work, to let's go and make something, mm. which I think is just a wonderful progression. Where can people find you? Where can they read more about your stuff? How, how can they connect with
1: you? Um, they can find me on um, – you can Google me um, because um, a lot of my, my research comes up. I have a website. Uh, you can find it at taralomax.com. Yes. Um, I, I work under the banner Assembled Illusions which is what I really conceptualize franchising to be and what my love of cinema is. It is an assembled illusion. Nice. Uh, assembled of many different elements that come together, whether it's, you know, different elements in a film or different media platforms. That's what I see cinema to be, an assembled illusion. Um, so I really, I really, I work under that kind of banner with uh, all my research output goes in there and things I'm doing. You can also find me on uh, LinkedIn um, and uh, Twitter, uh, sort of my public kind of um, um forums like platforms um so yeah please please engage with me there i'm more than happy to talk to people about you know what their thoughts are on what we've been talking about um yeah thank you for having me
0: no worries tara linux this has been great thank you we are going to continue talking in our very strong aussie kiwi connection (laughs) that is a podcast great job thank you tempest bay wouldn't be possible without the amazing support of everyone involved including you If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and consider leaving a review. This helps us out a lot. For more, please go to projecttempest.net for access to the videos, art, podcast, award-winning stories, and much more. That's projecttempest.net. See you next time in Tempest Bay.